Welcome to Mood Unfiltered. This is Tiffany Wicks and my podcast partner here. Richard, how are y'all doing today? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you doing, Richard? I'm awesome. I started a new book recently. It's called Boom and Bus. It's by professors from the University of Cambridge. They talk about the history of financial bubbles and kind of what goes on in the wider economy. So that way, people could be more informed and more well-researched about what happens when economies do really well and what happens when economies do really bad. It always pays dividends to like be aware of what can and can go wrong. Yeah. No, that sounds interesting. And wow, like great, uh, interesting insight from a professor at Cambridge, knowing that they're doing some probably up-and-coming research too. It's a good book so far. I like what I'm reading and it makes a lot, it makes understanding economics and finance a lot more easier, but that's kind of like a, some background knowledge just to have like, outside of like what else I'm doing besides what comes with mental health and counseling and things that can just help my career and personal life. Yeah, no, I, I love that you're always growing and you're trying to further yourself and your knowledge. I think that's, it's so admirable for sure. So um i actually i'm actually i'm good i'm actually in baltimore this weekend and traveling um starting a new practice and so um working on that and then getting that wrapped up so that we can launch and then um moving forward so it's it's good to um kind of have some time alone so that's been nice how long have you been in baltimore for I actually just got in last night, so got in late last night, and then um, I'll be here until Saturday, so about three and a half days. Okay, you get some yeah. vacation time on your hands. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, just kind of exploring the city, too. It's a little different with COVID, you know, but um, everybody seems to be taking it seriously and masked up and all that good stuff. So, I mean, I feel pretty safe here, and that's that's all I can ask for, so... Yeah. Got to get that business. <laughs> For sure. Um, so let's dive right in. So, you know, there's so much happening in the world. We really wanted to highlight um, some of the world events. Um, we don't want to get too political with things or anything like that. But we really want to talk about the mental health implications of what's going on in our in our world right now. Um, the first of which um, I really do want to talk about Haiti. This is something that I've been following very closely. Um, Haiti has just gone through one hit after another. Um, a couple months ago, their president was assassinated. And what ended up happening was um, after he was assassinated and his wife was hospitalized, um, the country was in disarray because there was actually two appointed um next in lines, um, if you will, and Supreme Court, uh, which is their next in line. And um, they uh, did not have a definitive answer on that in their constitution. So they actually didn't have an appointed leader. There's some fighting in that and who's actually going to be able to take next in line. Um, And then they just had a 7.2 earthquake um, in which 2,000 people are already declared dead. Um, 
And so the country is is just in turmoil and disarray. Um, There's a lot of issue with getting funding without bureaucracy and red tape going through it and going through the government's hands again, you know, because the government is in such disarray and being able to get that to the people. Um, And so there's a lot of displacement there. There's a lot of people who are um, homeless, who are trying to seek asylum, refugees, um, trying to resettle. There's a lot of trauma there that's happening with the people. Um, The second issue that I wanted to highlight was Afghanistan. And this is kind of one of those things that's also touching the U.S. a little bit because um, the U.S. has just withdrawn fully from Afghanistan. Um, And I know that there's still people there trying to get out um, who are seeking refuge at the consulate and trying to get the Air Force to um, to get them out. Um, but the Taliban has taken over within days of the U.S. pulling out. Um, they basically walked right into the capital um, and took over the government. And so um, they have been a very oppressive regime in the past, um, not letting women go to school, not letting um, uh, women actually even have their own clothing. They've been wearing burqas from head to toe. Um, and so knowing how oppressive it is um, and just how punitive it is to really kind of do anything um, and live life there. It has been um, very sad to watch that. Uh, There's actually been planes that have gone out where uh, refugees have clung to the planes, where they have snuck onto the planes. Um, There was a plane that there's a picture that's kind of circling around the media that um, upwards of 800 people who were um, at the airport um, got on a plane at one point and everybody's shoulder to shoulder um, sitting and trying to um, get rescue. Um, The plane, the airport is overrun. Um, People are trying to seek refuge there, hoping the Taliban will not prevent them from leaving. Um, so there's there's two large events there. There's a couple of other countries that are really going through, um, you know, some starvation. And I mean, there's a lot of countries that are going through that, but kind of just excessive um, starvation, hurricanes, natural disasters, those kinds of things. Um, we're seeing the world really hurting right now. We're seeing a lot of people who are uh, lost, literally um, and metaphorically, um, and just kind of feeling hopeless in that regard. Um, my, my thought on this, uh, and the reason why we bring this up today, not just because it's a hot topic, but because, um, trauma is so incredibly prevalent, um, in these situations, particularly, um, but trauma is prevalent in the, in our, in our lives, right? And so when we think about that, um, thinking about the ways in which um, we heal from trauma and we deal with trauma. Um, And I know Richard's gonna kind of cover this in a second, but I just, I wanna highlight too that there's a lot of survivalism going on right now. And I think what happens is when people are going through extreme difficulty, Um, they go into survival mode and 
they don't necessarily realize everything that has happened to them until it's finished happening. And I just can't imagine what's going on with the people of Haiti specifically and the people of Afghanistan specifically because they are in survival mode right now. And even though they're witnessing these atrocities and it is traumatic in real time, they probably don't even grasp how heavy this is until it's happened. Um, And so our thoughts are with them. um, Our good wishes are with them. um, But also as mental health clinicians, um, we are here and we're ready to listen. Um, And so Richard, I kind of wanted to bring it to you in that I know that you've been doing some research about trauma and kind of just like looking at um, what the research is saying about those kinds of things. So I'm going to kick it to you. Let me start off with this quote, which I'm not too sure the source of, but I've heard it repeated by multiple people from podcasts I listen to or shows that I've watched. And this quote goes, the worst thing that has ever happened to you is the worst thing that has ever happened to you. And what that means is that everyone's experience is very individualized, very personalized, very nuanced. And that goes across people of all kinds. And it's a lot different depending on the country you're from, your upbringing, the demographics of the kind of person you are, and the area where you live. So areas like Afghanistan and Haiti are dealing with a lot of different issues than any issues that America deals with or any other first world country deals with. So it's always important to want to assess disasters that go on and assess the SES status or SES of countries in order to kind of get an idea of what's going on. For example, in one of the research articles that I found, it's states it's important to assess the disaster to kind of figure out what needs need to be filled and a good working model to understand the needs to be met is Maslow's hierarchy of needs starting from starting from physiological needs like food water warmth rest Mm. up to safety needs like if people are safe people are secure people don't fear for their life or whatever the next level being belonging and love, which is be able to like have a feeling of belonging with your social relationships with others, with your friends, with your families. After that is esteem, whether it's you have feelings of accomplishments, you have things you want to get done. And then there's self-actualization, which is all the way at the top, which is be able to achieve one's full potential, be able to have creative aspirations, and all these five different levels, they kind of vary on depending on the country with the amount of resources they have at the disposal. And when you're working with trauma, it's always important to kind of assess the needs of a group. For example, people in Afghanistan are more likely to have needs that need to be met in phys- physiological needs and in safety. And depending on the disaster, it can always vary between countries too. Whereas a country, country like the U.S., which might be more fortunate than Afghanistan and Haiti, some common hierarchy issues that we would need to address in disaster responses or in traumatic experiences, we, the U.S. citizens might more likely 
to be able to meet safety needs, belonging, and esteem, and often self-actualization. So I think this pays attention to how fortunate we are as a country and how much empathy we feel towards other countries. And one way to deal with trauma effectively, depending on what need needs to be fulfilled, a good technique would be to form peer support groups, people who can relate to certain issues, people can relate to the same form, form of trauma, people who are able to relate to others and bounce back and forth feedback between one another, what's helpful, what's not helpful. For a good example of this would be Alcoholics Anonymous, which is very based in alcoholism. And peers come to these groups, they are led by a group leader, and they go back and forth between their stories, their experiences, and maybe they can share insights they would not know otherwise if they didn't go to the AA meetings. And there's even Narcotics Anonymous, and there's plenty of other peer groups that are nonprofit or organized that exist. If you're a clinician or practitioner, you can make your own peer support groups. You can make relevant trauma groups that kind of discuss PTSD, that kind of discuss sexual assault, emotional abuse, or even you make your own peer support group if you're a veteran and you're leaving Afghanistan. And you might be able to get valuable insights from peer groups like that. And it's good if you're a general person that wants to be a part of it and needs to help the end to sure how to get. A peer group might help you get more insight. Maybe if you're a clinician and you see certain issues kind of occurring clients or your patients, maybe a peer group might be a good idea to try to try out. And if you're not familiar with running peer groups, maybe seek out other people who are, or maybe just kind of do your own research and see how, where, where your first peer group blood meeting goes. People who are experiencing trauma will obviously have different levels of resiliency. And depending on like the time of year you were born, whether you're the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, early 2010s, everyone will have a like, perceived different level of resiliency to handle different things. And also, it's also good to have healthy distractions away from your trauma to kind of get your mind off what's going on in the world. Like, for example, like if you're hearing about all this news in Afghanistan, if like you're in the U.S. or any other country and you hear about all this news and it's really getting to you, it's really getting emotional to you, or maybe you got some sort of connection there and it's not so much you can do besides just listen to what the media tells you, maybe it's a good idea to turn off the screen. Maybe it's a good idea to get away from that source of tension because it's causing so much distress. It could even, it's even also a good idea to be away from the source of the stress if you've had experience with sort of related trauma because you don't want to go back to the source of the trauma and re-traumatize yourself. So if you're prone to these issues that kind of go on and they trigger you a bit, it's a good idea maybe turn off your phone Go find something else to do. Find different distraction. Can I get your mind away from these issues? Another thing to, cons to consider is if there's personal trauma and then there's vicarious trauma. And personal trauma is stuff that happens to you. Happens to you directly. Happens to you because of this event. Because it happened because of X, Y, Z. Then there's vicarious trauma. 
when someone shares their trauma with you and you kind of carry it away with wherever you go. And this is important because even though personal trauma affects the individual, vicarious trauma can affect a community. Imagine being a, a clinician yourself and you listen to all these stories of similar trauma and you kind of carry that weight with you wherever, wherever you go. If you don't like dis- disseminate it appropriately or you don't deal with your own inner traumas yourself or let's say you get it, someone gives you a negative attitude or in relation to their trauma, you can take that negative attitude and bring with you wherever you go and it could affect other people and can kind of spread elsewhere and I think keep an eye on shared trauma but that's going on between people is very important to keep a close eye on so that way you don't want the whole community to be affected because of a few traumatic events that happen between people and it's not so belittle what goes on with these people who experience these traumas but it's pays attention it pays for attention on these issues so that way the rest of the community isn't impacted and that's why we want to be able to treat people effectively who have experienced traumatic events who need certain needs filled from the Maslow hierarchy of needs model and just calls for attention for us as clinicians to be mindful for how we react to things we hear for how we carry ourselves throughout the day and if we need to keep ourselves in check yeah, absolutely. I think that's such an important point about um, vicarious trauma. And I think that I see that a lot in clinicians too, even, you know, from last year, right, where so many people were displaced from their jobs at home, uh, quarantine was really heavy, maybe they were trying to homeschool their kids and work and those kinds of things. That was a trauma in and of itself. And so clinicians taking that on, um, and dealing with just heavy depression or even first responders, those kinds of things. Like, um, that was huge. You know, I, I really love that you ended on that point because that kind of segues into the mental health aspect of the modalities and the, the clinician side of things. Um, and there's so many different ways to treat trauma, which is such a promising, um, aspect of the field. Um, and yet, at the same time, we have to be really sensitive to what our clients need. And Richard, you brought up some really great points. Um, you touched on culture and socioeconomic status and um, even just views of mental health counseling from that individual client, right? And so um, the clinician really getting to know the client and what their needs are before they start treating is what's going to be really important and valuable. Um, but the clinician to really know themselves. So again, going back to that vicarious trauma, know where your limits are, right? So um, for a lot of people, the issue in Afghanistan really touches close to home. And um, for those who maybe have family veterans or those kinds of things, um, family members who um, have served in Afghanistan or Iraq and those kinds of uh, situations, um, the, the recent tw- last 20 years, this may be a really touchy subject. And for cl- clinicians to know their limits and their boundaries and refer out as necessary, that I want to say that that's probably first and foremost. Second of all, knowing where your client is um, in these things at, at what point they're um, 
they're dealing or coping with their trauma. For instance, I talked about survivalism and how that's kind of one of the first phases of trauma. I think that that's really important for us to assess whether our client is coping or not in any way, shape or form, whether it's negative or positive. And um, if they're just in that survival mode, because what happens in survival mode is that, again, they may not be aware of how intense their trauma is once they've just stopped surviving and the things have stopped happening to them. Um, And so that may come with a flood of emotions. We do call it flooding um, and kind of overwhelming them. Um, also understanding, you know, again, what modalities you are most well-versed in. So there's trauma for our trauma-focused CBT, which is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at thoughts, um, behaviors, and then, um, change. Uh, there's EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I never say that D word, right? Mm. Um, and, uh, that can be really powerful. It looks at um, bilateral stimulation of the brain um, to reprocess trauma in specific events. Uh, last week, we talked about virtual reality therapy. Um, that's a huge uh, cutting edge way to kind of segue into dealing with trauma and specific events. Um, there's mindfulness, um, inner child work. There's so many different things that um Guided meditation, I think, is still is, is um, still not researched and focused on enough, but can be a huge way to um, tap into the subconscious aspects of uh, trauma and healing that. Um, there's different avenues you can go in um, for the client. I would really encourage you to seek out a therapist who is um, most verse in trauma and that is one of their focuses um every clinician i would venture to say every clinician sees trauma a fair amount of trauma um but knowing what types of trauma they touch on for instance you were talking a lot about like refugees and asylum seekers and those kind of things there's actually a specific training um georgia king who is at lcsw out in california she trains nationally um through through um, virtual learning, clinicians who are interested in, in doing asylum assessments um, and uh, working with refugees. And so this training is super valuable because that's giving clinicians an avenue to um, specifically work with uh, a, a, type, a type of trauma that is not necessarily widely um, counseled, right? So knowing what the clinician is working on. So for instance, um, there's clinicians that work with uh, spiritual abuse and uh, depression. There's clinicians that work with racial trauma. Um, And I I think if you can look for a specific clinician that is well-versed in your um, need, you're also getting a clinician that is going to be culturally sensitive to what your need is. Um, and that's incredibly valuable. So from a clinician side too, just kind of like knowing where your avenues that you want to expand in your practice, um, and getting the proper training for that. Don't assume 
don't assume your story is their story. Um, I even think specifically of like veteran PTSD. Um, even if you're the wife of a veteran or you are a veteran or anything like that, your story is not somebody else's, um, like Richard said. And so being trained and properly um, developed in that modality or that, that treatment method um, is going to be so incredibly valuable. Um, we have to be culturally sensitive to these clients. We have to be um, looking at the individual client. I cannot stress that enough. Richard cannot stress that enough. But it's, it's invaluable to know who you are as a clinician and then come into that session wanting to be present and being available for your client to assess what they need, not what you need. Um, and at the same time, do your work on the back end when you hear that trauma so that you're not getting that vicarious trauma that you are taking care of yourself. Um, and so that's kind of my soapbox for today. I am very strongly passionate about that. Um, I myself is, have experienced various trauma. Um, it is very painful and it's hard to recover from too, especially when you have to continue serving clients. Um, and so being mindful of that at all times um, cannot, uh, it cannot ever wear out to just take care of yourself. So Richard, do you have any final thoughts? I think it's very important as a clinician and also just as a person in general to be comfortable and allowing other people to feel comfortable to express themselves. We're non-judgmental. We maintain stability in our tonality in our own emotional intelligence. And we clean up our own baggage behind the, the counseling door. So that way we don't have to impose our own values of what we think is best for the client because the client might be in a very sensitive or vulnerable state of being with wherever they are in life and whatever mode of recovery they're in for their trauma. It's very important to address trauma because it can cause a dysregulation of the brain. It can affect the brain size and can result in emotional dysregulation. So, but it's, that's not to say that trauma can't be touched on. We just have to approach it very carefully, very thoroughly. We got think about what we say and just be mindful and just listen and just listen as at least the very least we can do. Just yeah. listen to what the client says or what other people are sharing and just be present. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so Richard, where can we find you? So before I share where you can find me, I would like to say this. Give us a follow on Spotify if you enjoy this podcast a lot. And, and if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating of five stars. Give us a comment, a review, because we're now available on Apple Podcasts. I'm, we're pretty proud of how far we've come. We're on all podcasting platforms for now. We have other plans on beyond other platforms, other plans for more guests. There's a lot of exciting things here on Mood Club and Mood Unfiltered, so stay tuned. And you're on my website at www.wellroundedstudios.com you can find me with the social links down below on my instagram on my linkedin and tiffany where can we find you 
You can find me at www.moodcollab.com. And I am the owner and clinical director of Mood Wellness Collaborative in Connecticut. And uh, you can also find me kind of in my personal ventures on uh, TiffanyWicks.com and just some different publications and all that good stuff. So um, we just want to thank you so much. Um, You know, again, oh, and then we forgot to plug our Instagram. So our Instagram at Mood Collab. Um, it's got some really great, cool, um, innovative content on there. Uh, shout out to Carly, who runs our social media. Um, she's doing an excellent job. So, um, yeah. So thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast today. I think that it is just um, such a relevant topic to our world today. Um, and so you have listened to Mood and Filter.